honestly say we do not know. Now that I think about it, she just did a lot of drugs. <laughs> now shut up and learn. <laughs> I want the pig. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that reads dry, dull, Edwardian nonfiction so you don't have to. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Though we're crippled with debts and very stupid. Well, that may be true, but we're never late for dinner. <laughs> uh, I, I guess that's so. That's mostly because we always order pizza, though. <laughs> we're, we're fairly punctual in general. I think we, <laughs> we can say that. That's true. Uh, yeah, so welcome back, everyone. This is our uh, second standalone Tom Repeats History Fashion Backwards episode. That's right, long Although awaited. We're much longer on the uh, the history this time than the fashion. Yes, uh, dramatically so. Yes, uh, <laughs> very little fashion. Yes, next to none. I think I have a sentence or two. I don't even think I have that. Okay. Uh, so that's what you're in for. <laughs> you know, uh, turn back now. Yeah, if you're only interested in, you know, hats. And furbelows. <laughs> I do love me a furbelow. <laughs> Little known fact, before uh, the Furby craze, uh, it was furbelows around Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, just people killing each other in the street for furbelows. Wow, mm-hmm. that is strange and uh, unconvincing. Well, Tom... <laughs> What do you want from me? I've been reading a horrible book all week. It's true. Uh, has we, we both have. It's been fun. Yeah. If by fun you mean existentially crisis causing. <laughs> well said. No, it wasn't. <laughs> See, this book has made me dumber. Wow. This book has made my turns of phrase clunky and unwieldy. Uh, spoiler alert. It is not getting our endorsement. And redundant. I said clunky and unwieldy. That means the same thing. It does mean the same thing. Oh, I'm losing my perspicacity. <laughs> I mean, the title and subtitle of your book both start with the same word. It's true, which is a real no-no. Yeah. You know, from an editorial stand- standpoint. I'm not sure that this book was edited just based on... I'm judging this book by its cover. <laughs> and it just it seems like a, a one-person affair. Uh, well, that, that seems pretty, uh, yes. (laughs) It seems to have been printed not by a publishing house, but by a Mr. Frank Cass of Newbury House, 900 Eastern Avenue, London, IG27HH, UK. So, I I suppose I ought to direct my complaints there. I suppose so. And I, uh, have no evidence to back this up, but I'm guessing that's Jeffrey Green's (laughs) father-in-law. Okay, well, you know what? Before we get going on uh, old Jeffrey Green, right? which we will, <laughs> yes. because holy shit, you guys, <laughs> I'm not sure there's ever been anyone less qualified to write a book about black and warty. <laughs> let, us, let us first, though, pause and have a bit of fun. <laughs> yes. This telegram is from our cousin. Hooray. Our first telegram comes from cousin Krista. 
Dear cousins Kelly and Tom, I am a Downton devotee and an avid follower of your podcast. I discovered you in September and marathoned my way through all the episodes. You make me laugh and your verbal chemistry is a wonder to behold. Not only do you two crack me up, you have taught me a lot about Edwardian history, culture, and mores. What prompted me to write is my viewing of the 2010 version of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Hugh Bonneville plays Valet to Toby Jones and I entered into a Julian Fellows mindfuck. <laughs> Seeing Lord Grantham in a servile role opposite Vera Bates' husband who survived the Titanic made me reach for another blue moon. <laughs> Perhaps everything could come full circle and David Suchet could come and solve the murder of Dan Stevens at Downton Abbey as a way for him to exit the show. Thus, balance would be restored to the world of British actors. Also, I think the Dowager Countess needs to take tea with Angela Lansbury and Judy Dench. Am I the only one who is dying for this scene to happen? <laughs> On another totally unrelated note, I too am from Ohio and, an, and am a product of Catholic schools. I believe, Cousin Kelly, that our schools were both in the GCL sports grouping. You have both also mentioned University of Dayton in your podcast, which is a Marianist school like my Dayton High School, Chaminade Juliet. Anywho, keep up the good work. She was drunk when she wrote She this. was, yes. She wrote, keep up the good, the, the great walk, which I do have a great walk. It's true. I, I've, yeah, I've seen it in action. Anyway. <laughs> Anywho, keep up the great work. Thanks for all that you do. Only 36 more days until Downton Abbey season three. Fondest regards. Uh, she also noted that I didn't, uh, put the, the subject line on this paper here, but the subject line of this is in my cups. Watching Hugh Bonneville, <laughs> which is probably the best way to watch Hugh Bonneville. Really, the I only think. way. It's the only way we ever do it. <laughs> 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 that sounded dangerously close to admitting that we have a problem, <laughs> which we've sworn never to do. So, <laughs> we apologize to any of our listeners who are on the wagon. We have deepest respect for you and what you do. Yeah, yes, um, yes. I would. I. Uh, this is very exciting, though. However, uh, my school also in the GCL sports grouping because. It was Shamana Julienne. Oh my god! Yes, I went to the same high school as Cousin Krista. Wow. That is very exciting. I wonder if you know some of the same people. It's possible. I was class of 97. No idea what class Krista was. No, um, but me neither. Yeah, so uh, that's... Well, she's at least 21. Um, she was drinking Blue Moon beer. <laughs> well, okay. That's, you, unless that's... she has a very pliable... You know, supplier. Yeah, a convincing fake ID, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that's a reasonable deduction, I think. Cool. Um... Yeah, I would uh, sing the fight song, except I can't. I can only play it on the trumpet. Um, Get out that coronet, Tom. Well, uh, it would need a lot of oiling and greasing and whatnot. Gross. Well, I have not used it in probably 10 to 12 years. Well, I'm glad we keep it around. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I also agree that tea with Angela Lansbury and Judy Dench. Yes. Uh, let's just throw Helen Mirren in there. W- why not? Is Dame Diana Riggs still around? Get her <laughs> ass in there. I think she might be dead, though. In, in which case, no. She was, like, really old and she was an aunt of Green Gables. So, uh, I see. anyway, yeah. Why, why can't we have, like, a, like a web short, you know? I, like, the Dowager does tea. I'm, I'm ready. Julian Fellows. Why yeah, stop put, all this other nonsense. Yeah, put the brakes on this damn golden age or <laughs> gilded era NBC show, which is going to suck. Yeah. It's going to be on freaking NBC. Yeah. Like, when's Hello? the last time they had an hour-long show that was any good? ER, man. <laughs> ER. Do you know how long ago that was? Uh, many of our listeners don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> That's how long ago it Point, was. set, match. <laughs> Yes, this is how NBC is going to come roaring back to relevance. 
by uh, riding on PBS's coattails. Brilliant move, NBC. I don't know. That Dust Bowl documentary was pretty good. Uh, it was pretty good. I don't see it flying on network television, but uh, <laughs> it was an enjoyable documentary. Ah, uh, come on. It was sexy. <laughs> uh, okay. In a depressing way. Uh, it was uh, dramatic. <laughs> anyway, uh, next we have a telegram from Cousin Kaylee. Writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, I really liked your Gosford Park review that you did some months ago. I finally watched the movie and then listened to your podcast right after. It was hilarious and insightful, so naturally I was excited when you recently announced you'd be watching and reviewing A Room with a View, one of my all-time favorite movies. But as we know, you guys didn't think much of it, neither the story nor the film interpretation. You made some good points, so it put into question why I thought so highly of this film in the first place. I can only surmise it was because I first watched this movie when I was 16 and saw myself like the wide-eyed, sheltered but hoping to be more worldly Lucy. Additionally, the movie ignited my interest and adoration for Florence, Italy, where 14 years later, my boyfriend, now husband, would propose to me in a hotel near the train station. Also, that song they play in the opening credits, O Mio Babino Caro, was sung at our wedding. Lastly, this film was my first introduction to the great Dame Maggie Smith. I didn't know of Maggie Smith's typical roles prior and have spent recent years unraveling the Charlotte Bartlett Association and replacing it with Dowager. Looking at this movie now at 38 years old with your commentary, I do see parts of it that I simply accepted without question that are indeed silly, ridiculous, and dispassionate. It's like waking up from the Matrix or something. But wow, you guys are so Team Cecil. In my many, many viewings of this movie, I never looked upon him with any sympathy or admiration before. I just wanted him to go away. I think it's because warming to him meant cooling to George, who I always found quirky yet endearing. Endearing in a mouth-rapey sort of way. (laughs) In any case, I do credit this film for launching my love for Anglo-period pieces, including the present-day show Downton Abbey, and along that line, without Downton, I would not know of your highly insightful and entertaining podcast. So you see, Room with a View has some redeeming qualities. I can't wait for the new season of DA to begin, and will be eager to hear you take on all of that as well. Happy Holidays, Kaylee in Seattle. P.S. I was recently trying to list Britain's living national treasure-worthy actresses, the careers of which are arranged, acclaimed, and legendary. I can only come up with Maggie Smith, Helen Mirren, and Judi Dench. Emma Thompson might be close, but she still seems a bit young to be national treasure status. Any other leading ladies you would put in that echelon? Well, Cousin Chris already did, Angela Lansbury. Right, clearly. And so, I think that's that's it? I think I can't think of anybody, you know... Like, Imelda Staunton's a little bit, like, you know, she's <laughs> yeah. not that great. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, I mean, she's great, but just, right. she's just not, not on that level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's give it to that four. Yeah. They're like the craft <laughs> of old ladies. That, uh, there's another brilliant movie idea for you right there. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. <laughs> the craft remake starring those four. Oh my God. <laughs> Kelly would buy all the tickets. I would buy all the tickets. Please, uh, Hollywood executives who listen to this, <laughs> I know you're not out there. <laughs> but we need to make this happen. <laughs> like, they're all in high school. And they're all outcasts because they're like 80-year-old women. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, like, Robin Tunney can still have a cameo. They can't join the cheerleaders because it would literally kill them. <laughs> Through the power of witchcraft, (laughs) Angela Lansbury finally gets to sleep with Skeet Ulrich. The dream is alive. I know. (laughs) Uh, Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Melvina. 
Greetings, cousins. I was wondering if you were going to the Edwardian Ball in San Francisco in January. I went last year and it was glorious. I will be there and my head is spinning with what to wear. If you haven't heard of it, visit the website. Cheers. So the website is edwardianball.com. And mm-hmm. I feel like I had heard of this, although I this feel also that, yeah. felt like the first time I had heard of it. Right. I actually felt exactly the same. <laughs> well, there's always there's always some weird costume party going on in San Francisco. That's true. So it, they do kind of run together. Yeah, they they have to have one every day. It's the <laughs> law. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't have plans to go. Right. Well, we don't have anything to wear at all. Yeah, we're not even crafty or anything. So right. we have to rent everything and like yeah. we'd go and people would like be talking to us and Right. And we'd be like, We're we're imposters, you know. We don't Yeah. <laughs> we don't even like steampunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh then I imagine we'd be run out of town on a rail. So uh I can only assume. Please go and enjoy yeah. Cousin Melvina. It's, Send photos. Oh, we by all means. Photos. It's an event we support. We just, uh, you know, hate to see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We're recording this uh, in under cover of Darkest Night. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Spencer, who writes, My dearest cousins, I'm taking a quick break from my station on the front lines of Princess Patricia's Light Infantry, a.k.a. Santa Rosa, California, to write you this quick missive. I just finished watching A Room with a View in advance of tomorrow's episode, and I'm happy to report that I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great recommendation. And please pat yourselves on the back, as it just occurred to me that you are single-handedly responsible for at least 95% of my knowledge of the Edwardian era. Thank you. If you have a few moments prior to taping the podcast, I highly recommend you read the appendix section on the A Room with a View Wikipedia page. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the fate C.M. Forrester prescribed to his characters. He's thrown me for a total loop. I can't decide if he's a complete genius by adding an unexpectedly complex new layer to the work, or if he's a massive shit and has destroyed everything he so methodically set up. What do you think? Okay, enough out of me already. The OCs are getting ready to stage another attack, and I'd like to sneak out for a quick fag in the trenches before too many shots are exchanged. Keep up the fantastic work. I'm positively giddy with anticipation over the upcoming season of Downton and your corresponding episodes. Your ever-faithful bastard gypsy cousin Spencer. Okay, I'm not really a bastard, but I do have gypsy ancestry, Tom. P.S. Is there any chance Kelly can squeeze in a McGee luncheon into the episode for us? A Room with a View did have several luncheons, as I recall. The new season of Downton is coming up mighty soon, and we don't want her to be rusty. Uh, so congratulations, Cousin Spencer, for being uh, Cousin of the Week, based on your really comprehensive and not at all uh, heavy-handed dropping of a lot of podcast canon for us. <laughs> yes, indeed. It was really impressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also for alerting us to this appendix, mm-hmm. uh, which is bizarre. Yeah. We got, we got this like right after we'd recorded. Right, right, last, right. Last podcast. Um, so we couldn't put this on mm-hmm. then, obviously. Um, so we're glad, Spencer, that you liked A Room with a View, even though we didn't like it. Right. Um, uh, hopefully you're not terribly impressionable and then <laughs> changed your mind. So, uh, I will, I will actually read this appendix, which we can then discuss, cause it is really fascinating. Okay. And I will go ahead and, uh, read this in McGee voice and then just say luncheon sometimes. <laughs> I think that ought to do it. I think that's a good compromise. 
In some books, an appendix to the book is given entitled A View Without a Room, written by Forster in 1958 as to what occurred between Lucy and George after the events of the novel. It is Forster's afterthought of the novel, and he quite clearly states that I cannot think where George and Lucy live. They were quite comfortable up until the end of the war with Charlotte Bartlett leaving them all her money and her will. But World War I ruined their happiness, according to Forster. George became a conscientious objector, lost his government job, but was given non-combatant duties to avoid prison, leaving Mrs. Honeychurch deeply upset with her son-in-law. Mr. Emerson died during the course of the war, shortly after having an argument with the police about Lucy continuing to play Beethoven during the war. Eventually, they had three children, two girls and a boy, and moved to Carshalton from Highgate to find a home. Despite them wanting to move into Windy Corner after the death of Mrs. Honeychurch, Freddie sold the house to support his family as he was an unsuccessful but prolific doctor. After the outbreak of World War II, George immediately enlisted as he saw the need to stop Hitler and the Nazi regime, but he unfortunately was not faithful to Lucy during this time of war. Lucy was left homeless after her flat in Watford was bombed, and the same happened to her married daughter in Nuneaton. George rose to the rank of corporal, but was taken prisoner by the Italians in Africa. Once Italy fell, George returned to Florence, finding it in a mess, but he was unable to find the Pensione Bertolini, stating the view was still there and, uh, and that the room must be there too, but could not be found. He ends by stating that George and Lucy await World War III, but with no word on where they live, for even he does not know. Luncheon. <laughs> well, that is... Amazing on a variety of levels. <laughs> First I, of all, I'd just like to point out that Lord Grantham hears that all day, every day, throughout his entire life. Right? <laughs> so, you know, that was just a taste. Maybe that's why he's such a twat. <laughs> it could be. Um, second of all, I don't even know where to go with all of this. No, I mean, it's weird because on the one hand, I appreciate... I suppose him kind of being like, oh, by the way, like happy endings are shit. Right, right. And they don't mean anything. Yeah. But also, it just seems like weirdly specific about certain things. Yeah. And granted, we're we're reading this from Wikipedia, not from the actual text. Right, right. So there's probably some things maybe left out, but it's like, who left Freddy in charge? <laughs> right. <laughs> he clearly wasn't fit to be in charge of anything. Yeah. Well, and having an argument with the police about Lucy continuing to play Beethoven. Right. With the, was she doing it like on street corners while waving a German flag? <laughs> How did the police get involved? I, I don't know. I, I mean, cause they didn't have like, would they have declared that treasonous like freedom fries? I mean, look, I know that the British government during world war one was like horrible and yeah. you know, all sorts of terrible things. I, so to an, I can see I can see getting in an argument with like your neighbors and being shunned by having the gall to continue playing Beethoven, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I could see that, but I'm not a hundred percent sold on George being a conscientious objector either. I mean, maybe. Well, I find it hard to believe that he would have been a conscientious conscientious objector in that war, 
and then not being one in the subsequent war. I don't know. I, I mean, guess you, I mean, you know, the Nazis were way worse than the Kaiser. Right. Nobody's suggesting that, but it's just, it's, yeah, it's weirdly inconsistent. I also like, he unfortunately was not faithful to Lucy during his time at war, but then that's like, it's not like they broke up or anything or she ever necessarily knew about it. Right. So who cares? Right. Right. So... So we think that's weird. Nuts to you, Ian <laughs> Forrester. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, and I did also just sort of want to say as a, a kind of wrap-up to A Room with a View, just sort of... I, I was I was pleasantly uh, surprised. I was worried that more people would be upset with us for disliking it so much, because I know it's a you know well-liked movie. But um, I think what's positive is, you know, we did introduce it to a bunch of people. Yeah. Who might not have otherwise watched it. And, you know, it's, you know, everyone's prerogative to like or dislike yeah. what they like or dislike. <laughs> that that it is. Free to be, you and me. <laughs> okay, so uh, I guess at this point we're going to move on to the actual, uh, you know, meat of the episode here. And this is this is pretty much just a book report episode we're doing. Yeah. Uh, we've both been reading our assigned texts. In Kelly's case, Black Edwardians, Black People in England... 1901 to 1914 or sorry black people in britain 1901 to 1914 whereas i will have been reading edward and the edwardians a biography by philippe julian yes so. which you found in the strand bookstore i found in the strand bookstore yes i was in new york and went to see if there was anything edwardian and there was that and it's out of print and i was like i must have this yeah and i bought this book uh if you recall, after a long period of trying to track it down online, it right. was really expensive and hard to find. Uh, and it turns out that's because it's a horrible book. That's that's what I've heard from you. So we can start with my horrible book okay. and then move on to your horrible book. Good plan. Um, so, yeah. So Jeffrey Green is some random dude, random white dude, I think. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's very He's white. super white. But that's not clear from his introduction. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm being weird about it. But the one of the things that makes this whole book difficult is that he's very weird about identifying whether people are black or are not black. Because hmm. it's like, you know, when he's talking about black people interacting with, you know, white people, it's not always clear. Like, I'm still not totally sure mm-hmm. uh, on some of the anecdotes. Um, that just, would, yeah, I mean, it seems central to the whole thesis of your book. Yeah, there's not really a thesis. Yeah. There's, it's, it's a very muddy book. Mm-hmm. There's all these different chapters that are, you know, tied together thematically, or they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But he never breaks those chapters down into any kind of manageable chunk. Mm-hmm. Like, he'll have, like, there's a chapter that I'm not going to cover today about, um, black people in in the service in the army and there's like two people that he talks about whereas the book on the middle class or the chapter on the middle class there's like 25 different people that he talks about i mean that's just like primary subjects that's not including name dropping like their kids mm-hmm. sometimes their spouses relatives that kind of thing um and but he just there's no structure that is reflected across all these chapters. Like sometimes he'll start out being kind of philosophical and then move into anecdotes. 
and then sometimes he'll end by being philosophical and then more often he's just sporadically being philosophical yeah. and telling these anecdotes and it's just very hard to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some genuinely interesting history here and he is one of the only people who's bothered to research mm-hmm. uh, Anglo-Africans in this time period but it's just really really poorly done. Yeah, yeah. Um and I'm just I'm very disappointed because it was really hard to find any information. Right. And to have it be so inaccessible yeah. is just frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Um anyway, uh we'll start with his introduction, which is weird. I he, gathered as much. He starts out by kind of talking about his his grandmother and and you know, how she thought of black people or something, even though it's not entirely clear to me uh why we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um but he belies his sort of, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little bit like oversensitive on this. Okay. Um, but in the introduction, he says he's talking about like all of these, like, you know, uh, people, black people of the Edwardian era that were of note. Uh, and he says, I understood why the children's street game of touch an N-word for luck had survived generation after generation. There had been a widespread and continuous black presence in Britain for years. Right. You know what? Now that I've reread it, because I forgot, it's not just that he says the name of that game yeah. in a way without... A very quali- casual, yeah, like... Without any qualification, as if, like... Also, spoiler alert, this book was written in 1998. Yeah. Like, a serious scholarly work like this, you know, should have thrown a couple six <laughs> or something in there. Right, right. Uh, I'm like, are you are you continuing to engage in this game, Jeffrey right. Green? Are you, in fact, cu- going around touching black people for luck? Right. He's like, oh, I'm writing this book. Let me, or, let me rub your head. Or did you as a child? I'd be interested in to know whether or not, you know, that was, like... Because I, I, and maybe it's more clear in context. That sentence sort of leaves to me. It says persists for persisted for so long. Like, how is it still going on? I don't know. Like, well, as I, we've said, uh, Europe is racist as shit. That is true. Like super. Like just in just in surprising ways to Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, like this whole uh, Schwartz Pete thing in in Holland that I just like. I feel like I had known about before, but sort of got noticed this year. How in Holland Santa's assistant is uh like racist black character like oh my God. minstrel show sort of situation. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Get your shit together, Europe. <laughs> here, here. Uh anyway, no, but this statement it doesn't like this is this is what he thinks is like why would you say this? <laughs> right. Oh, there is a footnote on that game. Uh-huh. Oh, the first child to touch a black person walking along the street was deemed to have acquired good luck for the remainder of the day. One version necessitated spitting on the pavement first and was explained to me in 1981 by a Paddington veteran recalling the 1910s who was full of respect for the local black doctor, John Alcinder, who had died in 1924. Okay. That still doesn't explain why... Right. Like, you're gonna, like, have. So, yeah, was it just in the Edwardian times? Because you're saying, like, it's still going on. Right. 
Uh, and then there had been a widespread and continuous black presence in Britain for years. Like, a, duh. Uh, right. Well, so, and just as that, like, to me, that almost would lean towards the lessening of that game as if they're widespread and continuous, it becomes less interesting. Uh, you know, to me, if they're widespread and continuous, they would become less exotic and, you know, luck bringing. Right. But I don't, you know, but I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about there. So, so. he pretty much torpedoed his credibility with me. <laughs> Within the first couple pages of this introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he does acknowledge that, you know, there's not really been a quote-unquote proper investigation of black people in Britain uh, because the of the belief that was and is widespread that people of African birth or descent are were from somewhere else and thus could only be in Britain on a temporary basis. Mm. Um, which, as this book does go on to demonstrate, is not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also says in this introduction, um, you know, England technically abolished slavery in 1772, which is, you know, mm-hmm. far ahead of, of the United States. Right, right. Um, but basically, black people were kind of subject to their slave status in Britain into the late 1820s. Mm. But there's still sort of this sense in Britain, you know, that since they technically abolished slavery so much earlier than America, they were much more enlightened. Mm -hmm. And racism in Britain seems to have manifested a little bit differently Mm -hmm. than it does in the United States. Um, You know, they never, like, codified, at least as far as I can tell during this time period, there wasn't any codification of, like, a Jim Crow Mm -hmm. law or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, and they really looked down on America for doing those things. Right. But at the same time, a lot of residents in Britain were kind of espousing those views. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a story in this book about – it's unclear who this was, but there was a group of black gentlemen who went to a publican and were refused service and were kicked out. Mm-hmm. And they wound up filing a complaint with this magistrate who basically tried to cop out. Like, he was like, you know, oh, like, your right should be the same as anyone's. But also, you know, you know, the publican has the right to resu- to refuse service uh-huh. to anyone. And it turned out one of the members of that party, it's not totally confirmed, but was uh, W.E.B. Dubois. Oh, wow. No, Dubois. Yes. Listen, I'm ignorant. <laughs> right. No, well, I knew I that just, in first grade. I learned all about him in first grade. I think it's Dubois, it's been a while. actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yes, because it's Blanche Dubois, <laughs> W.E.B. Dubois. Helpful tip. <laughs> it's a mnemonic for you there, listeners. Um, anyway, so he was part of, of uh-huh, the group, uh-huh. it seems. Um, but that account is difficult to back up, as is essentially every account. In this book, because there was no written history kept in a lot of cases. Right, right. And in many cases, pretty much all the anecdotes that he has are of crimes committed by or against black people. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the only time that it would wind up in the newspapers. Right, right. So it was just difficult to find a primary source uh, mm-hmm. on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a section about black people in Britain being uh, imperial exhibits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these were people who were professionals and they worked the exhibit 
circuit. Oh, okay. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so they would leave wherever their home was and they would go tour Europe and, uh, you know, they were basically, you know, presented as these conquered people, but also as like warriors and soldiers. So, you know, it was very interesting, uh, for people in Europe to see them, you know, they would do things, you know, like at, at expos and things. Right. Well, it and, seems and, like it's the same sort of circuit that like Buffalo Bill would exactly. have been on. So they would, they would recreate, you know, a village uh-huh. and, and be there and, you know, people could come and see, you know, which is interesting. I mean, it's, you know, there is definitely some exploitation going on there, mm-hmm. but I don't think it was as bad at the time as it kind of seems now. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, there was very little other way to kind of expose people to different cultures. Right. Right. Um, you know, it was very difficult to travel in Africa Mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, so, you know, it was a way to expose people Mm -hmm. and, and start this process of a multicultural society Mm -hmm. as backwards as it was at the time. Um, and there's this really, like he devotes an entire chapter to this again. I don't know why he devotes an entire (laughs) chapter to this. But there is a chapter in this book called A Revelation in Strange Humanity. I do not understand why it is called that. Okay. So there was this guy named J.J. Harrison, and he had traveled to Africa and basically convinced six uh, pygmy black people from the Congo Mm -hmm. to come with him back to Britain. Mm -hmm. And it was this whole bizarre thing because... He kind of had to like camp out with them in Cairo for a while before he could get permission to bring them back to England. Hmm. And he was like acting like this was like a spur of the moment thing, but it, he had actually, you know, after the fact, it became very clear that he had contracted with a bunch of these um, theaters and performance halls to bring these pygmies in right. and do an exhibition. Right. And these people pretty much lived in Britain for a really long time. Mm hmm. And the, you know, the kind of, I think the crux of this chapter is supposed to be that, you know, oh, they were brought as these oddities. Mm -hmm. But then eventually the people of Britain kind of grew to accept them as humans, which is a really weird thing for a chapter to try to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. All these chapters always make him seem like he doesn't like think that black people are people Mm. in a strange way. Yeah. I don't know. You know, he just, he's like, seems like really academic and just very strange. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, people did not have a really good sense of what Africa was. You know, Uh they, they, everything they knew, they were getting through this filter of missionary and imperial imperial writings, Mm -hmm. you know, which were kind of glossing over the slave trade and, you know, the way that, um, white Europeans had been and continued to exploit Africa's resources and its mm-hmm. residents. So they well, had this sense of, you know, black people as cannibals, black people as these godless heathens right, right. who were also unable to kind of provide for themselves, um, which obviously wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So it is really cool that these six people came over and, you know, despite the fact that they were these very small black people, Everybody kind of warmed to them pretty well. There is the youngest one was named one of four things. Apparently, <laughs> no one could quite decide. Uh, his name was Mangangu, or Baruti, or Mangongo, or Manganga. But he uh, spoke Swahili, which is what Harrison spoke on mm. his expedition. So he was able to kind of go through the forest 
and you know recruit these people. So right. there were um, there were a total of four men, and then there were three women. But one of the women was sent back because they suspected that she had measles. So they sent her back. Um, they had a really hard time traveling because they were used to living in the forest. And so then when they had to ride on the sun, like in the sun, you know, oh, right, like right. in the Serengeti and stuff, like yeah, they just couldn't handle it. Yeah, so yeah. it took them a really long time to get to Cairo. Mm-hmm. And they had to be seen by this doctor who basically said that only two of them were fit to go to Britain, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been, I believe, it's not specified here, but um, Manganga was one of them, and then there was a younger woman who mm-hmm. was pretty healthy. Um, but then the older men and the older woman all had a lot of health problems. Uh-huh. So they finally were permitted to get in to Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went on stage within five days of reaching London. And they also were in Yorkshire twice, hmm. which is where Downton Abbey would have been. Right, right. So Julian Fellows, you could have... This wouldn't have been contemporaneous with Downton Abbey. This is 1905, but, mm, you know, yeah, you yeah. Have, like made some sort of reference or something. <laughs> so what's also weird is like these pygmies are going around dressed for battle and completely armed. They've got bows and uh-huh. arrows. They've got spears. And they're just being sort of trotted around to all these different people. Yeah. And... uh it's just fascinating that they're allowed to like run around with these like naked weapons and everybody just assumes you're not going to use and they and they don't. Well, right. Yeah. They, you know, I'm sure we're being paid, you know, pretty well and Yeah. I just I'm so fascinated with what I I like this should be a movie. Like mm-hmm. this is amazing. Like mm-hmm. how do you as a pygmy have some crazy dude come up and be like, "Hey, right. I want to parade you around in England." Mm-hmm. Like do you even have a concept of like where that is and and what yeah. that is going to entail um and they wound up actually they were uh they went to the birthday party of princess victoria oh they also had a command performance for the queen later and there's uh there's this guy who was their their handler named william hoffman and he was a really weird dude <laughs> so he had um been born in germany but he was raised in London. So he was uh, Henry Stanley's valet. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually... Henry Stanley, who wrote um, In Darkest Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. So that guy. Yeah. So um, he went with Stanley to Africa uh-huh. on that expedition. And was, you know, his constant companion for a couple of years. And then when Stanley died, which was in 1904, he only left Hoffman 300 pounds. Mm. And then Hoffman was irritated by this and started kind of dropping hints to Stanley's widow that he was going to, like, expose his reputation and, and the truth behind uh, a bunch of stuff that which, he'd done. Which I've read about, and there's no time to get into it here because I don't remember it offhand, but he was a charlatan of the First Order. Yes. Yeah. So basic because and his and his widow is like oh I don't think he's gonna like you know I'm sure he means like all the good stuff that he did but he's <laughs> he's a bad writer so he might make him sound bad <laughs> so Dorothy Stanley not the sharpest tool in the shed but uh, she and her millionaire friend Henry Welcome basically paid off Hoffman until they died to keep him from talking yeah, yeah. so Lady Stanley recommended Hoffman. 
and his wife, Janie, to uh, Harrison to be sort of charged with looking after these pygmies. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, he could speak Swahili so they could communicate. And basically, though, like, even though she uh, recommended him, she was writing, they only have to intoxicate him and bribe him. And there is no knowing what he may say. Perhaps I am unjust to him, but he is a weak, untruthful man. (laughs) So, yeah, that's weird. There's that. Uh, But, you know, she was probably thinking it would get him off of her back. Yeah. Begging for money. Um, yeah, and they were, they were kind of like, uh, you know, a, a pop band. They went all over Britain mm-hmm. doing their, their weird little exhibition, which was mainly them, like, they were, like, in front of wigwams and playing tom-toms, which has nothing to do <laughs> with their actual native culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would, they would, they were proficient with their bows and arrows and their spears, so they would, like, kill rabbits and stuff for the queen, and mm-hmm. she'd be like, oh, bro, I assume. Uh, I don't. I don't think they also recorded uh, for the gramophone company back when there was only one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want a gramophone, you got to go to the gramophone company. Yeah. Uh, so they actually they recorded, um, you know, them them talking and some music. And there's only a few. Uh, yeah, there there were only five discs that were ever pressed. So oh, they're wow. very very rare. Yeah. Um, they of course were. It's- all on BitTorrent now. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they were pretty well accepted overall. People weren't too uh, racist toward them, which in light of many, many other people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Now, apparently the only difficulty they ever experienced, this is according to Hoffman, who wrote a book uh, about this, which has also kind of been widely discredited because he Mm. was, in fact... (laughs) <laughs> quite a bad writer right uh but he says the only difficulty we experienced was in the matter of lodgings at glasgow for instance we arrived from the station on the bus our agent had hired for us only to be met at the door of the hotel by an irate landlady who declared that she could not possibly have blacks about the place mm. and uh now he says here one has to qu- question the quality of the agent who booked a black act into racist accommodation uh yeah, again, I think faulting the wrong person there. Yeah, like, I think uh you know, and it's not like racist accommodation to answer the phone, uh <laughs> oh, thank you for calling uh, you know, Mrs. Natty's boarding house. <laughs> racist since eighteen seventy nine. But uh If you're black, please hang up now. Yeah. And also at this point, because he he refers to having six Africans with him at this point. And Mm -hmm. at that point, actually, the older woman had been sent back Mm. because she was so ill. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they went to Germany for a bit. And then they came back and the six Africans wound up living at a place called Brandis Burton Hall, which I think actually is in Yorkshire. And so there was a heated summer house for them there, and they were basically members of the community. Hmm. Um, and people there, you know, could still remember interacting with them up until the 1990s. He says it retained memories of the Africans, which I'm assuming means people who knew them died right. in 1990. Right, right. Um, which would make sense. Yeah, and there's a lot of great photos of them in here, too. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they had a fondness for cigarettes and chocolate. Some of them were really into fashions of the day. Mm. So that was, you know, really fascinating to me. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't get a whole lot of the uh, 
perspective of the pygmies. Right. The history was being kept by their white handlers. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I just, it's crazy. And then they all went back. They all went back to Africa in 1908 and had spent three years abroad. And it's just kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Yeah. No, and that's, I mean, that's, you know, just sort of one of the tragedies of history is that there's all these fascinating stories that never got told or written down, mm-hmm. you know, their perspective. Um, I think all the time, now that I know about him, of like Squanto, the, uh-huh. that helped out the, the pilgrims, yeah. who had a far more fascinating life story than any of them. Right. Was like kidnapped, escaped from slavery, tr- crossed the Atlantic like three times, found his entire tribe destroyed by smallpox, just like epic mm-hmm. adventures his whole life. And, you know, all we get about them is what the pilgrims thought. Yeah. Which, they were assholes. <laughs> they were. They were like, thank you, Squanto. Here, have some smallpox. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so other sort of imperial visitors would be people from sort of British-controlled areas. Mm-hmm. Their, you know, top officials would come mm-hmm. and sort of pay homage in Britain that was always a big to do because, you know, British people love their pomp and circumstance, especially if it's a pomp and circumstance that they'd subjugated. Um, I'm referring specifically to this time period. If you're British, I don't know that you <laughs> still enjoy displays of subjugation. Well, I think uh, all the people that you used to subjugate uh, left. Yeah, that's so a good point. <laughs> take that, Britain. <laughs> Uh, and there actually were a few black people who were knighted by Queen Victoria. Hmm. A Sir Edward Jordan, who was a Jamaican, who was mayor of Kingston in 1859, and Canadian Governor Sir James Douglas, who had been born in British Guiana. And then the first African knight, you know, someone who was born in Africa, was Samuel Lewis, who was as much at home at Britain as Sierra Leone, where he'd been born in 1843. So there is a little bit more cross-pollination than I had sort of expected. Right, right. Um, there is, at least at the upper region, reaches of society in in you know both majority black countries and uh britain kind of a a, i'm sure begrudging respect on both sides Mm -hmm. but you know they all knew how to get along with each other right um the working class section of this book is almost entirely about crime Mm. and there have been you know there were a lot of black people in edwardian workhouses there were many, many uh, black women working as servants in Edwardian homes, uh, presumably more so in the cities than in the country. Mm-hmm. There is this interesting case where there was a uh, – the wife of the chief justice was convicted for beating a black servant, hmm. um, which – this happened in 1908, which in America – well, certainly w- this case wouldn't have seen the light of day in the South. In right. the North, probably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they found against this woman for being incredibly cruel. Mm. But it's really bizarre because they had this doctor come in to examine the girl who said that she'd been beaten. And this doctor was like, okay, it looks like, you know, this woman has been beaten. But then he was like, oh, I've never examined a black person before. So then they bring in this other guy a Dr. Lightfoot from Watford. And he examined the girl four hours after the other doctor and he could find nothing to indicate a flogging. Uh, and he had considerable experience among black people. And yeah, wow. the, the conventional wisdom at the time was that black people had tougher skin than that of Europeans. Uh-huh. So therefore a flogging wouldn't hurt. Right. Or, well, I, 
that's all strange. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, the the women who were working there were basically just sent back to Nigeria mm. to kind of hush the whole thing up. Yeah. There's also this woman who was known as Obama, the African giantess. It's A-B-O-M-A-H. Okay. And she was just this really tall woman. The postcards that survive say that she was seven feet, four inches tall. Mm. And she just would like be around. And you'd be like, oh my God, I saw this enormous <laughs> African woman. Yeah. People are easily amused. Yes. Always have been. <laughs> Black people were frequently chauffeurs. They also uh, had a tendency to join the navy a lot, hmm. and there were quite uh, there was quite a big population of uh, black Britons in Liverpool, hmm. and there was a very very multicultural feel to Liverpool in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this guy named Pat O'Mara who wrote of the Irish communities divided by religion, Hawaiians, Chinese, and blacks, Negroes, Chinese, mulattoes, most of them boasting white wives and large half-caste families in Brick Street with African sailors of the Elder Dempster line living in Gore and Stanhope Streets. And a lot of the local women in uh, Liverpool would marry black guys because they were better off for their wages in general. Hmm. And the white dock workers tend to tended to you know not pull in as good wages or spend it and beat their wives Mm -hmm. so a lot of the black sailors who lived in liverpool were just better husbands for Mm -hmm. a lot of them Mm -hmm. uh which was interesting yeah well it makes sense that they'd be in the navy because the navy had always just sort of recruited slash kidnapped wherever they were so they would have had people of all races you know for a long time so it's mentioned that whatever the motive, those blacks who turned to crime and were discovered could be confident that their ethnicity would be mentioned in Edwardian newspaper reports, uh, much like the present day. Yeah. That was the other thing overwhelmingly when reading this book. It doesn't strike me that things were particularly different. You know, mm-hmm. the, the same mm-hmm. prejudices that you see in contemporary America kind of exist at this time. Right. Um, you know, obviously the the lines are a little bit more heavily drawn, but you still have people interacting, you know, like in Liverpool yeah. and in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, again, it's just a shame that there's not more information on this. Right. Because right. this book I found to be kind of incomplete in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Cause like this stuff on the working class is just, you know, it's like crime after crime. Yeah. And, that got very dispiriting very, very quickly. Yeah. There was some participation in manufacturing work as well from black citizens. You do hear about, you know, there's some upperly mobile families who, you know, they started out working class and moved up to the middle class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so that's kind of the working class thing. Uh huh. So I didn't get into some of this stuff in detail, um, but there were many, many black entertainers mm. uh, who were traveling in Britain. Uh, there was a lot of cross-pollination in the entertainment industry uh-huh. from America. Oh, okay. Um, so a lot of people, you know, from America, they would go, you know, to like Jamaica or um, the West Indies and to Britain and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, work their way around like that. Mm. Um, there were many people in the military, uh, obviously, Lots of ministers, and you know, a lot of that was emigration sparked by the uh, missionary efforts oh, in yeah, Africa. Yeah, so yeah. you know, they would recruit people there and then bring them back, and um, you know, educate them, and then kind of you know send them back and forth. And then yeah. some would just stay in Britain to establish their own churches. Mm. Lots of writers uh, and and athletes. 
a lot of students were educated, a lot of black students were educated in Britain, mm-hmm. these would be sort of the upper crust of the African nobility. Right, right, as right. As well as a lot of people from the Americas mm. uh, would come over to be educated in Britain. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of, because not in America, obviously, but in many parts of the world, you had to have a British certification to be permitted to legally practice medicine. Mm. So there were a lot of people who were coming to Britain to complete their studies that way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the middle class is very interesting. Um, he kind of focuses a lot on Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who I'd heard of, but I did not know what his deal was, but he was a composer okay. in Britain. And he was also um, a black activist in Britain. And he's mm. really the only one mm-hmm. that gets focused on in this book who's really kind of actively fighting to... <clears throat> get black people treated better uh-huh he wrote his his big thing that people know him for is the song of hiawatha oh okay and yeah. he just he did a lot of fascinating work he went to the royal college of music in london and he did a lot of work incorporating negro spirituals from america into his work hmm. um unfortunately he died when he was only 37 oh. and i mean he accomplished more in 37 years than i think i'll accomplish in my entire life he's uh, yeah. very very prolific you know, but still considered middle class. All these people were working. Uh-huh. This is the black uh, bourgeoisie. And for some reason, because it's bourgeoisie, I always think it's higher class than it is. Right, right. Um, so these are all people who would have been in the same social class as Matthew Crawley yeah. uh, prior to the death of the heir of Downton. Mm-hmm. Well um, off, but they have weekends. Yeah, well off, but yeah, they do have weekends. So I didn't do a whole lot in detail on these people because this is the chapter with so many anecdotes that yeah, we'll be yeah. here forever. I did find some evidence of intermarriage, which was really interesting because mm. I was curious, you know, right. how that kind of trickled up. Uh-huh. And um, the doctor we heard mentioned before, John Alcindor, he mm-hmm. did marry a woman named Minnie and her parents cut her off mm. for marrying a black doctor. She was a free thinker. Yeah. Um, and they wound up raising their children Catholic. I can only assume that they were Church of England. So they were right, right. You know, two strikes. Yeah. Um, then there is another guy named James Jackson Brown, and he married Millie Green, who was the daughter of a well-established Jewish family in Hackney. Hmm. And there's a fun photo, which obviously you guys can't see, but there's a great photo of him <laughs> along with his wife and his mother-in-law. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were definitely people willing to accept uh, intermarriage at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was probably easier than it would have been in America mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, they didn't have the whole like civil war thing mm-hmm. in the past. I mean, obviously, you know, much, much more difficult in the South in America, but I don't think even in the North, it was particularly easy to intermarry. I mean, it was, it was explicitly illegal mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. does not appear to be the case in Britain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So however, obviously uh, people were still experiencing racism. The anecdote that I told before about friends of WB, Du Bois, there was still a lot of racism directed at these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, it's the same reason as racism everywhere. People see that you look different or seem different and just immediately decide that you're more trouble than you're worth. Right. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there wasn't really any evidence of anyone black who would have been in the circles of the the Crawleys. Right, right. So, and that doesn't, you know, if he's one of the peerage, mm-hmm. even if you're knighting black people, you're not going to be elevating 
anyone of African descent to the peerage, mm-hmm. which was disappointing because I really would like to see a yeah. person of color. I doubt Navi. Yeah. Yeah. In any respect, you yeah. know, just, just something. Cause they were obviously there mm-hmm. and, you know, far more of them than anybody would believe by what's available online. Right. Certainly. Cause there's yeah. just no, yeah. you can't find anything mm-hmm. if you search online. Right. I mean, you know, I have some names here. So if you listener are super interested, I can send you some <laughs> names. Um, but yeah, if anybody out there is uh, looking for a thesis for their history PhD, Seems to be open. This is wide open. Like, and this book is not good. (laughs) You could easily overtake this guy (laughs) as the, uh, the authority on Black Edwardian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Yeah. So sorry. That wasn't very funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, this isn't, uh, Tom repeats comedy (laughs) humor backwards. Um, Well, it isn't. We're very educational. Well, that sounds fun. All right. <laughs> now shut up and learn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yes, I will be covering Edward and the Edwardian. So I'll actually be covering uh, basically pre-Edwardian Edward. I, I basically have only read up to the point where he becomes king um, and haven't read the rest of it. But uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff in there. And it was, you know, a little bit of field from what we've been covering. So, I wish my book had been as interesting as yours. I'm sorry. My book my book is strange. I'll say that about it. It's, it's written by Philippe Julian, and it was, it was written in French and translated. Uh, it was written in, I believe, 1961. And I can't quite get a handle on the tone of this book. Like, for example, the, the quote on the back says one sentence and it is he can see how extremely funny much of this overstuffed period was but it is with appreciative and joyous laughter that he tells his tale and i just that don't sounds like it was translated from japanese oh, right well i just don't like that's why i think a lot of the stuff that just is like really weird to me is funny in french <laughs> like i think that's a lot of what's going on i think it's a poor translation or actually i mean oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <Mon> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so definitely strange. There's just this sense, and I've got a couple examples in here, where it just is, you're reading it as normal and normal, and then there'll just be a few sentences where it seems like King Edward was standing over his shoulder while he wrote those sentences. <laughs> and then King Edward wandered off and he could continue writing the book normally. Like, it's it's just odd. A lot of unsupported assertions also. But anyway, I'll just sort of go through my notes sequentially. Uh Prince Edward uh, was actually born uh, or named Albert Edward was his actual name. Albert after his father, Prince Albert, who Victoria loved passionately. And I mean, throughout her, I mean, he was, she was widowed for something like 30 years, but was just continually, it, it seems odd to use the word obsessed over your, you know, deceased husband because you should naturally have those feelings but she was obsessed mm-hmm. like it, it went beyond normal scene. oh i saw mrs brown i i know what's up okay i did not starring judy dench incidentally ah yes if you've not seen it it's quite good i have not seen it so it, oh it's very good it's about this guy i forget what his position is but he's john some, brown yeah oh okay then i've in like in scotland and stuff yeah yeah okay I, yeah. well he's much covered in this book well, great, because that's why they would call her Mrs. Brown, because like, oh, she would yeah, hang out yeah. with him so much, right. even though there wasn't actually 
anything romantic between them, but like you know, he was sort of her mm-hmm. her surrogate uh, Albert. Yeah, except more drunk and Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he was born on November ninth, eighteen forty one. Which just struck me reading that. Oh, a Scorpio. He was a Scorpio. Wow, that explains the whole era right there. (laughs) It kind of does. Um, And it just struck me reading that because, I mean, he was, you know, 24 when the Civil War was going on. And yet the Edwardian era is not so long ago. And it just, you know, every once in a while something will remind me of how, like, short history is, how things aren't that long ago. Right, right. But yeah, he was uh, named Albert Edward. One of the Queen's advisors was like, listen... He's got to be called Edward. Nobody in England wants him to be... Because Albert's a German name. Oh, right. And Victoria was always very pro-German her whole life, mm-hmm. largely just you know as an extension of her love with her husband. But she was always pro-German. And in his well, face... it's a good thing she was dead when World War I broke out. I, it, it would it, have it, broke her heart. Yes. Um, and really, a lot of this book is dedicated to like the long build up to world war one that's sort of an underlying theme mm-hmm. um but yeah he was uh known as birdie to his family which is is one of two things uh that sorry, oh, it, that struck me because of birdie wooster right i was just gonna ask because that's the same period right it is the same period and actually when somebody asked about edwardian fiction like that's almost the the premier example mm-hmm. of edwardian fiction is is the jeeves and wooster yes, stuff and if you don't like watch uh reading you can certainly watch the excellent tv series yes. starring hugh laurie and stephen fry which is very enjoyable as that period of bbc productions go yes um <laughs> uh, but it also has some great american accents in it oh billy yeah um i've got my american accent to keep me warm, <laughs> mother. indeed but worse <laughs> like seriously <laughs> But yeah, and there's actually another uh, example somewhere in here. He had uh, a his his country home was Sandringham, and he expected all of his visitors to come and marvel at his uh, pigs. He he had his a, pigs. Pigs, yeah. Pigs. Uh, they were a, a new breed called, I believe, improved Norfolks or something like that, and they were super big. And it says that one of the last joys of his life was one of was was his pig winning a pig competition. <laughs> Which is also funny because that's the other sort of main, uh, like, universe that in, in, uh, PG Woodhouse books is Blandings, which is just this country house run by, I think, this doddering old guy whose only care in life is his prize pig. Wow. PG Woodhouse. Yeah. More of a, more of a razor sharp satirist than I would have thought. Yeah. So that, yeah, I was, I was interested by that stuff. Uh, another note that was in this first chapter, even though it's wildly out of sequence, is that, Edward, not surprisingly, did have a bit of an Oedipal thing going on with his mother who spent his whole life ignoring him in order to obsess over his father. Um, and after his mother died and he ascended to the throne, one of the first things he did was take the busts of his father that were all over every palace and dump them all in the attic. Oh my god. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um... So anyway, he was, uh, you know, he was educated by some tutors, as you would expect. Uh, there's a couple quotes from his tutors' uh, reports that they would naturally always be sending back to Victoria. 28th January. The sums left undone last night were finished, but the prince became excited and disobedient during the walk, encouraging his brother to insubordination. He broke off some branches in the park. Or 8th March. 
A very bad day. The prince behaved as if he were mad, made faces, and spat. Dr. Beecher complained of having heard some naughty words. Oh, dear. Poor Dr. Beecher. <laughs> yes, it is rather shocking. So, yeah, he uh, generally, as a child, made a reasonably good impression. You know, not much was expected of him, but he was, you know, as the heir to the throne, had to go around and be presented places and say his lines, and he did a good job with that. Later in more of, let's see, when was this? He he went to, Eng- uh, not to England, he went to Canada and America in his, I think in his uh, late teens, early 20s, he took a trip to the New World, which Victoria could not, you know, was too old and mm-hmm. cranky to do. Um, Whenever I think about Queen Victoria, I just envision your mother <laughs> dressed as Queen Victoria. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, it's not a bad way to think about it. Um, but yeah, he made a very good impression in in the New World. He watched the acrobat Blondine cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Ooh, uh, he I've met- heard of that. Yeah, I know. Me too. I was excited. I read about it when I went to Niagara Falls as like a nine year old. Um, he he went and visited President Buchanan, who was president at the time, one of the worst presidents of American history. And he was huge. Like it was a big chaos scene everywhere he went in America. Everybody was very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to a ball in New York that was just packed. The next day, a uh, clever person sold chicken bones that he claimed were the remnants of the chicken that the Prince Edward had been served, <laughs> uh, and sold like a hundred chickens worth of them. Wow! Yeah, what an uh, enterprising young chap. Indeed. Did he get caught? Uh, well, uh, once again, no footnotes. It's entirely impossible to say where this information in this book is coming from. Okay. So. Yeah, I will give that to Black Edwardians. It does have quite a jolly good chunk of footnotes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he went, uh, <laughs> yeah, here's another line. Just the author says he went across the prairies to see enormous shanty towns called Chicago and Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so he started to get he then went to he went to uh studied in both Oxford and Cambridge um so as not to sort of show favor to mm-hmm. one or the other. Um and when he was at at uh at university he did start to get into some uh little scandalous troubles. He what was the phrase? He had already begun to taste those pleasures which should serve as the reward of a sensible marriage. Gross. Yeah. Oh, there's all sorts of euphemism in this book. My God, I thought this guy was French. I know, and yet. And there was a, uh, the news reached Windsor that a young girl in Cambridge was in a delicate situation. Oh, dizzle. Yes. So, his father, Prince Albert, Did went- Did she have avian bone syndrome? <laughs> Uh, no. What is it? Why? What was a delicate? Uh, uh, I believe it was a royal baby. <gasps> yeah. A half royal baby. Indeed. In her womb. Um, <laughs> in her womb. Yeah. Um, well, and it was also, and this is something that I kind of learned from this book that I didn't really have a handle on, which is that Victoria really, like, kind of saved the monarchy because before her was, like, George Third, who was insane. Yeah. And they made his, that whole movie. Yeah. And his sons, who were horrible people. Oh, yeah. Like, on Blackadder. Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, people were really kind of getting sick of the monarchy as a whole when uh-huh. Victoria came along. And by being so 
prim and proper the whole time. She kind of rescued the institution. I mean, you look at the time, there were basically four emperors at the time. It was uh, Victoria, Napoleon III in France, uh, Frederick, I think, at this point in Germany, and Alexander in Russia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by about 20 years later, they were all gone except uh, England. Mm-hmm. You know, they, she's she kept the monarchy going. Well, and I mean, and that image persists today. Right. I yeah. mean, that's why we think of, you know, that whole stiff upper lip thing is because that tradition, you know, that became the new tradition. Yeah. Despite, yeah. I think, Edward's probably best efforts to tear it down. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, so, uh, but the key to this uh, delicate situation in Cambridge was that Albert came down to uh, remonstrate with Edward, got sick while he was there, or he was sick but made the trip anyway. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, at the same time that the English Civil War was, or American Civil War was going on, and England was very close to entering on the side of the South. What? Whoa. Yeah. Which I guess Which, makes sense based on my reading of Gone with the Wind, because Rhett Butler was blockade right. running yeah. goods from Britain. Right. And and economically speaking, it makes sense because the, the sort of na- nascent industry in England, you know, from their perspective, the South was their suppliers and the North was their competitors. Mm. So they were, they were going to be kind of, you know, tending that way in any yeah. case. And so they uh, – some – a union ship like stopped and boarded a confederate ship in english waters and it was a big incident and the many people in the government wanted to go to war and prince albert sort of with his last dying energy managed to convince them to like tone down their rhetoric about mm-hmm. it and keep england out of the war wow. um yeah which was very interesting to me that i you know i'd never heard that before uh and i the, i had no idea that they were going to be involved yeah yeah um, well and done, Britain. Well done, Prince Albert. Indeed. Uh, but then shortly after, he died, and Victoria always kind of blamed Edward for God. Albert's death. That's so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can't lay that on Edward. I agree. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, they never had a good relationship at all. Mm-hmm. He was well known to be terrified of her his entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, she never let him have any part in government. She never let him like see the, you know, diplomatic dispatches or anything like That's, that. You got to train him up, man. Well, yeah. How is he, he's like, it's a freaking divine right monarchy. Yeah. But that. Oh my God. Yeah. That was their relationship. That is bonkers. Mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. no wonder he just became a profligate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that um, the author says in this book. He says that, you know, it's common in monarchies for uh, monarchs to sort of fear and distrust their successors, Mm -hmm. thus keeping them from government. But all that causes them to do is bring together in their own circle all the people that are opposed to the current government, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just reinforces their their tendencies. Also a lot – so I'm not next is a chapter about him finding a spouse and it, it gets into just sort of society of the time uh, and how, um, you know, there were scandals out there, uh, a lot of scandals, people going off with chambermaids, being found dead in Houses,ville ill repute, that sort of thing. Uh, the one that interested me was when a certain young lady wanted to divorce Lord Henry Somerset, the son of the Duke of Beaufort, after she had surprised him in the arms of a footman. Every door became closed to her. No well-brought-up lady should have known that such things existed. Because she found her husband cheating on her with another man, 
she was shunned for knowing that homosexuality existed. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Bad form. I I agree, but that was you know I mean this was the whole I mean it's Victorian you know. Uh, but in any case, what with the various scandals that Edward was already getting into, they knew they needed to get him married. Uh, he insisted that it be a someone beautiful. He was very insistent on that. You know, he would see photographs and he would reject them. Mm-hmm. He said that one had quote too intellectual of a face. Uh oh, yeah. that must have been my photo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it was. This was 1870. You don't know me. <laughs> you don't know where I've been. <laughs> You're Doctor Who. Shh. <laughs> who do you think he's been keeping them from having a woman all these years? <laughs> it's to protect my secret identity. <laughs> Listen, cousins, don't tell anyone I'm the doctor. Really don't. I really feel, don't. I feel like there could be some sort of lawsuit involved. Right, because I also don't go around saving, you know, solving space crimes. <laughs> right. You just sort of let them go. Yeah, I just kind of sit around in one place in time. When I, you're like, hmm, something seems afoot here. I'll just get in my time machine and leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. The real Doctor Who of <laughs> Oakland, California. <laughs> Past the duchy on the left hand side. <laughs> I guess it could have been past the TARDIS on the left-hand side. Could have been. Dalek? I don't know. Past the Dalek <laughs> on the left-hand side. <laughs> I don't know how you work exterminate into that Yeah, I know. That's, there's got to be a way. Exterminate. <laughs> I don't know. If you can come up with better, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he'd, with the, uh, a suitable spouse was eventually found, uh, Alexandra of Denmark. The Denmark, the Danish royal family, uh, often known as Princess Alice or Alex, um, in her time. Victoria, uh, was weeping before having to meet her for reasons that are made on, like, the author thinks he explained why and I didn't get it, but she was won over. Alexandra was very, like, comforting to Victoria and was always saying how sorry she was that Albert was dead and all this sort of thing and what it lost was to her, which was the way to get on Victoria's side. And yeah, much better daughter-in-law than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they went on their honeymoon. They toured the Mediterranean. Uh, they, they did tour Italy, uh, but in heavy incognito because uh, Italy was in the middle of various revolutions and had it been known that they were there, the Italian patriots would have kidnapped them for political advantage. So they had to Boy, it's it. funny that they went anyway. Yeah, it is. Like, <laughs> this. Couldn't, couldn't just wait a couple of years? <laughs> nope. Well, to be fair... Well, you know, yeah, it would have also been the war and everything. Right. There, there wouldn't necessarily ever have been a good time. They toured the Middle East and Cairo uh, with... Uh, a, a clergyman came to join them in Cairo so that they wouldn't get corrupted by uh, the the luxuries of the uh, the Khedive or the Khedive. I'm not sure how to pronounce the the name of the sort of court in Egypt at the time, okay. but it was it was one of the more extravagant uh, courts I, or whatever. I don't think it worked. <laughs> Well, because what happened, like, they seemed to have been all right there, and then they went up to the Holy Land, and then they came back and stayed in France for a bit. Mm-hmm. And this was the time of Napoleon III and uh, Princess Eugenie. I'm not sure if, how to pronounce her name. Yeah, I think it's Eugenie. Yeah, but uh, they were everything that Edward wanted to be. Like, yeah. that, they were always basically the model for his life, his time there. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was just so opulent and very, you know, sort of free um, and, you know... 
his mom wasn't there. It was just, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty great for he him. He walked into their palace and was like, wow, not a single bust of my dad. <laughs> yeah. Welcome home, Albert. <laughs> Welcome home. Yeah. Or Bertie. <laughs> right. Not to confuse the listeners. Yeah. About which one you're talking about. Well, yeah. The queen was also very worried about him marrying Alexandra because he was worried. She was worried that that would somehow involve them in like Danish politics. Um, the Danish have politics. Well, as it turned out, Bismarck, the prime minister or chancellor, whatever his title was of Germany, um, took some land that was sort of Denmark's. It was one of these very unclear. It was mm-hmm. Schleswig-Holstein, and you know there were precedents dating back a thousand years as to who it really belonged to. Mm-hmm. And Bismarck took it on the always sound foundation that he had the biggest army in the area at the time yeah and would take it um and so that was that was kind of a slap in the face of the british and the british did nothing about it even though alexandra was kind of upset that her family was getting this land taken from them yeah but you know that wasn't how it worked well victoria had worked really hard to make sure that uh edward couldn't possibly take part in any kind of politics (laughs) yes indeed so yeah so yeah, they came the, came back to England and just basically were on a tour of receptions and parties for the next 35 years. Man, uh, that sounds great! As, as the author says, without either of them showing the slightest sign of fatigue or even of boredom. But that, that was just, you know, how they lived their lives forever. You know, they, they had various rounds. You go up to Scotland for grouse season at this time and you go mm-hmm. to the casinos at this time and all this sort of thing. Uh, their main houses were... Uh, Marlborough House in London, which uh, had been built by the Duke of Marlborough mm-hmm. back in the day, like 1600 or so. And is that who Marlborough Pie is named after? Uh, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then Sandringham, which was where the pigs lived. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want some pigs. <laughs> yeah. Some prize winners. <laughs> Indeed. Um, he was poorer. I mean, he was very well off, but he was poorer than most of his friends. Um, huh. you know, his, his money had to be voted for him by parliament and oh, it was true. always a fight. I guess that's probably why he enjoyed gambling so much then. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, uh, and having people have him over places. Oh yeah. You had to. Yeah. I do know that. Yeah. Cause they talk about him in the shooting party actually. Oh yeah. And they refer to Sandringham frequently, mm-hmm. um, because everyone in Britain who all had less money than him, mm-hmm. um, or you know, at least the landed nobility did, by mm-hmm. and large. Um, but, you know, they were constantly uh, trying to outfit their homes to be as good as or better than Sandringham. Mm. Although hopefully, you know, not too much better that he would get offended. Right. But, you know, it was always very much that. And, and the um, the wife of the lord in the shooting party, I can't remember if they totally confirmed it, but the, the idea is that she... Uh, had had an affair mm. with Edward, which I'm really excited about getting to that part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she would not have been alone. Um, <laughs> she didn't think she was. Right. Well, I mean, I, he's already impregnated somebody. Yeah. In story. Um, I wonder what happened to that baby. Uh, there is, uh, there were, um, and I don't even know that I took specific notes, but it does say that there were a whole bunch of people who were sort of generally considered to be his illegitimate children. Basically, any attempt to verify that would get tramped down on heavily by the crown sort of at any point in history so there's like nobody really certain that's so but weird some to me. people who had like very clear family resemblances mm-hmm. uh there's one person some guy who would uh at like costume parties or charades dress up as queen victoria and look stunningly like her <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, but they were all, all the, the, also, not only did they have the family resemblance, but they were all, all notably well treated by, uh, Edward and always made sure that they were well taken care uh-huh. of and, you know, comfortable in life. It's so weird that, like, any, like, attempt to verify, like, yeah. Like, it's not like they're legit, they're not, they're illegitimate. That's the whole point. Right. So even if they were verified, it doesn't make any sense to me, like, what, possible well, detriment that would really cause there's there's a line uh somewhere in this book by by leighton Strachey. i don't know how to pronounce his name he's a known victorian writer that mm-hmm. says that imperialism is a faith as well as a business and that victoria was really the center of that faith and and making it a faith yeah and so you know that's they they, they do sort of have to take this kind of religious approach that no there were no legitimate children because he was the king and divine right and all that oh i guess that makes sense yeah um, but yeah, at this, the, starting at this point and, and throughout his life, uh, very fashion forward. He, he set the fashions yes. uh, for his whole life. He, and, and the period. Yeah. I mean, him and his wife as well. They were both at, for, actually for all of Europe. They um, sound like a delightful pair, honestly. Yeah. They sound like they had a great time. Well, she was interesting. She was largely deaf and just really? faked her way through conversations pretty much her whole wow. life. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, amazing but she was very like lively and like dancing and and, and enthusiastic mm-hmm. he had four valets two of which would always stay at a home of his getting every you know pressing right. and arranging and two of which would travel with him wherever he was going uh he invented the hamburg um so that's it's my fashion note for the for, for the evening Ooh la la. yes i mean i've never invented a fashion I had a friend in college who made these pants that like tied up through your legs and had kind of a weird skirt on the back. But now that I think about it, she just did a lot of drugs. <laughs> that was a, a fun fashion note. <laughs> it's not Edwardian. It's just true. Yeah. Um, it talks some more about how uh, there there were uh, established mistress. Mistresses were a, a part of yes. political life at the time. Uh, and then the, again, the sentence in here. Uh, this has become so much an accepted part of the pattern of life, and it was done with such discretion and good taste that there were never any of those scandals that have discredited continental po- continental political life from time to time. Interesting. Like, oh, okay. That's he. Then I find that he, hard to believe, especially since there are various scandals described in the course right. of this book. Like, yeah, that's again just one of these random <laughs> sentences that's just like, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> He was being haunted by the ghost of Queen Victoria. <laughs> yeah. How did he pull this off under his mother's nose? Like, how did he manage all this? Well, I mean, it's not like, I mean, you know, he wasn't under his mother's nose, really. She was in Windsor and Balmoral, and he was in his own places and had his own society. So just, it was that once he was married, she didn't care how many women he impregnated. Well, I mean, I think it's more that uh, he was able to keep things under wraps his own self. Mm-hmm. You know that that in at, at Cambridge, you know, word was starting to get out, and it hadn't been you know properly handled. Uh-huh. Whereas after that, as he became to have more, you know, more of an adult and more of his own sort of power base, he was well, able. Well, I guess to... once you're wandering, Dick kills your father. You do, <laughs> uh, you do reevaluate how you're conducting your affairs. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, was actually a woman from, uh, Cleveland, uh, named Miss Chamberlain. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, came to Europe and kind of was a sensation throughout Europe. She was a, a young blonde. She apparently never actually succumbed to Edward, but he was really obsessed with her for a while. Alexandra was referred to refer to her, was heard to refer to her as Miss Chamberpot. 
score one for Alexandra. Yeah. Wait, is she the one who, uh, no. Because isn't, didn't you tell that anecdote about Edward? Was it him who was, like, playing cards with a friend of his? That, that was an unnamed person. Like, she, yeah. Okay. That is an that, anecdote that was from an this Edward, book. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. spoiler alert, everybody. I <laughs> feel like you've been reading this book forever, so I yeah. thought maybe. Well, no, I think like... I said that one. In the, there's a couple anecdotes that I, I previously okay. used that I, Great. I'm not reusing. I feel much one. better. Yeah. Um, there was a, uh, Lady Mordaunt as well. Uh, Boy, who, how dour. Yeah. Well, she, um, regretted her affair with him because her son went blind and she believed it to be like a judgment from heaven for her having had this affair. Oh my God. That's yeah. That's like Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Cause he always, um, I think he had a deaf son and he thought that it was like his punishment for shacking up with Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were some, uh, some letters that came to light in the course of this, you know, him, like just Edward asking if he could come see her on Sunday at five o'clock, to which the, you know, general English public apparently was, uh, it says, readers of the Times took a poor view of the prince's spending the Lord's day with a pretty woman. Why did Lady Mordaunt always receive him alone? Why did he go to see her in a cab instead of in his brougham? 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 I don't know how to pronounce that. How is it spelled? B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M. Yeah, I don't know. Brom. I know Barouche. Yeah. Um, but in any case, yeah, he was definitely fucking her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> On the Lord's Day, no less. <laughs> Indeed. But he appeared in court and said, uh, no, nothing improper, and that was it. Uh, people felt that he hadn't been closely cross-examined uh, because he hadn't. That, <laughs> that was why they felt that way. Um he also demanded only the best at table as well as in bed, it says, and he uh, discovered César Ritz in Paris, who is the founder of the Ritz Hotel dynasty. Uh, but he always made sure that everything was exactly how uh, Edward liked it. He made sure that only beautiful women were sitting at nearby tables. Uh, he, you know, the, the brand of cigarettes he liked, a gypsy orchestra. He always had a gypsy orchestra playing because that's what Edward liked. Like Google Bordello? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Google House of Ill Repute. Um, it says, if by chance there were some elderly ladies encumbering the hall, Ritz would lead them, would lead them to believe that only demi-mondaines allowed themselves to be seen there, and would park the least decorative of his clients in the winter garden. Uh, so that's how Ritz got going. Um, <laughs> There's also just this line about society at the time, I think particularly in France. It says, In this period of moral rectitude, only infantas could get away with having gigolos, and only grand dukes could be seen with those ladies who are known as half-castes in other parts of the world. What? I.e. Hookers? No. I.e. not non-white. Oh. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah, half-caste means mixed race, specifically. Um... Yeah, this is at, at this point. Uh, this is when Victoria was way into John Brown, a ghillie on the estate of Balmoral, which just means like hunting assistant. Okay. Um, but she was obsessed with him, um, and what spent all lady. her time with him. She was a weird lady, and yeah, Edward. By the way, also later that or later ordered that all memorials of John Brown be destroyed. <gasps> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, Vindictive much? Yeah. Here's another authorial assertion. We have only to look at the portraits of the queen during her 50s to see that the idea of a liaison between her and John Brown is absurd. <laughs> but 
she still presumably had working lady bits. A, like a, a hard, fleshy face that was ravished with bitterness and that certainly never glowed with pleasure. Oh my god! That is a... That <laughs> is mean! Yeah. I mean, look, I'm I'm plenty mean. You know, I, I make fun of Bates' potato face. <laughs> yeah. But, but Jesus! Yeah, like she was... I don't begrudge the ugly their ability to have... You know, right. sex with some random hunting guy. There are dozens of people uglier than Queen Victoria ever was having sex right now. This second. This second. Yeah. But hey, you know, that's Philippe Julian's opinion. That's so weird. Um, Philippe Julian, I don't believe I like you, sir. I think I might like him less than Jeffrey Green. Like, Jeffrey Green's just, like, ignorant. <laughs> yeah. Edward took a trip to Ireland. He thought he could win people over. Uh, he was generally charming, but you may have noticed, did not win Ireland over. No. <laughs> he, said, he said the cheers and booze were mixed, particularly in the quarters where the Fenians were known to inhabit. Well, maybe you shouldn't call them Fenians. Yeah. And they wouldn't boo quite so loud. Yeah. Were there any monkeys present? <laughs> I don't, n- not recorded in this volume. Bummer. Uh, he got seriously Ill, Ill with typhoid, which actually was a huge, like, plus for him. Everybody was so, like, happy and relieved that he recovered that his, like, public opinion skyrocketed. Wow. From this illness. Because they didn't have an heir at that point, right? Well, they, he, she had, I think it was only, did he have a, I know she had several daughters. I th- thought he had a brother too. Um, there's certainly like Princess Victoria was one of her yes. daughters and uh, some others. So there were other children of Victoria. Oh, okay. But he, did he personally have any children? He did not at that time. No. Okay. Um, but shortly thereafter, he began having uh, children. Elizabeth or Elizabeth, uh, Victoria was very upset because the male children did not have Albert in their name. And she had thought that it had been understood that all children going forward in their line would have Albert included in their Boy, name. She was really the uh, George Foreman of the Winters. <laughs> she was, yes. The Prince of Wales's children wrote a contemporary, Maria of Romania, always talk about people as the dear little thing or the poor little man. They always express themselves in a minor key and are very mute. From conversations with them, one derives a strange impression that life would have been wonderful and everything very beautiful if it had not been so bad. Um... Let's see, met a lot of foreign dignitaries. The Shah of Persia came with a young male companion whose presence could not be explained by birth or accomplishment. Uh, he was, the author refers to him as this Ganymede. Oh, Dizzle. Yeah. And I would call him a Pamuk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the author regrets that he was, it is not recorded what Victoria's reaction was when it was explained to her what his function was for the Shah of Persia. <laughs> Um, they also met, well, uh, you see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they also met, as said in this book, the king of the Sandwich Islands, Calicoa. Mm, I'm hungry. <laughs> but who was, we, I'm sort of gotten interested in Hawaiian history lately, and he was a, a very interesting person in his own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, Edward went off on a trip to India, uh, to give out a new award, the Star of India, to various, uh, rulers there to sort of, they were all sort of squabbling over who had precedence. They they looked at those photos in right. uh, Manor House. Right. Uh, and while he was on his way there, he found out in a telegraph that Parliament had just proclaimed Victoria as Empress of India. Oh. And nobody had bothered to mention that to him. So wow. that, that happened. Um, he was very uh, – the thing about Edward was that he always loved correctness. 
uh, and, you know, formality and everything being done the right way. Uh, every ceremony, he would say basically one of two things, either everything went off tremendously or, unfortunately, a few mishaps about the arrangements. Oh. And he was always, like, very, like, anything went wrong, anything went off schedule, and he would become, like, you know, like, icily furious <laughs> and, you know... Who does that sound like to you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think. Uh, it's me. Yes. <laughs> Icily furious. <laughs> yes. Uh, what else is interesting in this? The author keeps making references to Proust characters, assuming that we're, we're all familiar with Proust, which we're not. Nope. There's, yeah, there's a whole chapter entitled The World of Proust, which who cares? Proust. Uh, Parisians, I guess. Proustians. <laughs> I suppose. Proust's estate. <laughs> that guy from Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, that that's fair. <laughs> um, let's see. Was Proust a contemporary of Edward? Yeah, I guess so. That that was the. I like that you hate Proust so much <laughs> that it didn't even, even bother to yeah, me. He's like fucking Proust. <laughs> yeah, why I, is his ass all over this book? You know, based on nothing. I've never read a word of him, but I'm sick of him. <laughs> um. Yeah, this is the chapter about Edward as a European, sort of describing the relationships between people. All the royals hated Bismarck because he had noticed that monarchs didn't actually have any power anymore and would just ignore sort of, you know, who was married to who and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so all the royals didn't like him for that because most people hadn't noticed yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A line that the author says that one gets the impression that the Russians were only playing at being European. I'm like, oh, does one? Fair enough. I have never... The Russians have always seemed deadly serious. <laughs> right. Edward was the one that convinced Victoria to let Disraeli come to the Congress of Berlin. The Congress of Berlin being uh, dealing with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, being one of the very early forerunners of World War One that I mentioned back in our World War One episode. Let's see. A lot of this stuff was more boring than I realized when I took all these notes. <laughs> So I'm sort of skipping through Time here. Time makes fools of us all. Um, How you doing, cousins? Are you bored? Yeah. <laughs> Let us know. It'll be far too late. Uh, in France, the Republic took over. Uh, this did not make anybody in England happy. Uh, but the, the Victoria always gave precedence to uh, Empress Eugenie after her she was deposed. Always mm-hmm. let her go first when they, when she was visiting. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. That's something to think about while you're crying yourself to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, at this point, Germany and, and France had a war. Uh, the commune took over in France and was crushed. And then the aristocracy really came back in France at this point. Yeah. Because France and Germany were like, oh, this war is nice and all, but you should stop letting this, you know, take time off this war. Go fix the communists because mm-hmm. that's more important to all of us than this silly war we're fighting. Another note about the scandals of the time, uh, one woman uh, Edward was kind of pursuing at a party and thought he had gotten somewhere because she said she would leave a rose hanging on her door at night so he would know which one was hers. However, when he went there, he found that the ugliest kitchen maid in the house was in the lady's bed, <laughs> which I want to know how that was presented to the ugliest kitchen maid in the house. <laughs> hey, ugly. Well, and it seems like it yes. must <laughs> 
Well, it would have had to go through channel. It would have been you would have had to go to the housekeeper. Say, housekeeper, which of the kitchen maids is the ugliest? Ah, oh, I have just the one. <laughs> I don't. Fuck, what the fuck does the housekeeper care? Well, I mean, sh- I sure. doubt. I doubt that was entered into in the negotiations. She was just like, "Hey, ugly, <laughs> you're wanted as a bed warmer. <laughs> go do it." Yeah, uh, but in this era, actually, is is one of the times when. France was following England's lead on on fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of French people would sort of like drop English, like have an English accent to sound cool and like tr- put ing after verbs, mm-hmm. like in French, like just to like English up their, their vocabulary some. Interesting. Yeah, that was interesting to me. So they were hipsters? <laughs> yeah, kind of. A uh, lot of a uh, lot of prostitution going on. Uh, Grand dukes could be given tours by the police of the underground areas in Paris. So they had that like just a, a regular thing that like, if you're if you're a Grand Duke, you just went down to the police department. Was like, hey, can I see all the prostitute house prostitute houses? <laughs> like, you know, brothels, <laughs> brothels. That would be it. Bordellos, houses of ill repute. All of those things, and uh, and they just let you do that and. <laughs> Edward was, uh, again, let me find this here. Uh, again, it was always a, uh, he never says prostitutes. He never says anything like that. It's always in the form of some kind of classical illusion. He says, uh, the news of the prince's visit would scarcely be out before the ladas of the plain monceau would be all readiness to receive their benevolent visitor from Olympus. You know, Leda got turned into a swan so that Zeus could rape her. So I don't really think that that's an apt comparison. Well. Or wait, maybe he was the swan. I'm not sure. All I know is that she had twins that came out of eggs. And one of them was Helen of Troy. (laughs) The more you know. (laughs) There was actually a little bit, uh, as there's some interest in sketch comedy in our family here. Uh, There was a description of a a kind of a skit that was put on in Paris. Um attacking edward uh basically the members of a club are rehearsing their annual christmas pantomime we must be careful says one of them i hear that monsignor is going to come we shall have to cut out everything that might be offensive to him they exclaim immediately and a couplet on the gilly john brown is removed and then another on whiskey and a scene on debts and gambling and a tirade against the baron de hirsch in fact everything funny is taken out of the review wow this sounds like when i would try to write humorous sketches for my religion class uh, Charles made friends with Gambetta, an insane uh, Republican in France. This sounds who was like, delightful. Yeah, I, I wrote down that it was basically sort of like the picture you see of uh, when Elvis, Elvis met Nixon. It was the same sort of deal. He was just like unwashed, had bad breath, his clothes were always all rumpled and everything, like long scraggly hair. Yeah, and then so as you can by that skit, like, France quickly soured on England and by the late uh, 1890s just hated England. So that was a short-lived time. of <laughs> Which brings us to the present day. Right. Then there's a chapter about kind of the 1880s and the, the aesthetics, the, you know, mm-hmm. the esthetes. Um, and they're sort of, how they, they really didn't have much effect in England. Most people kind of hated them, like Oscar Wilde and, mm-hmm. and his whole crew. And most people just found them insufferable, as is somewhat true to the present day. But there were a group uh, called the Souls that were sort of midway between. Uh, and they would do things like just wear sprigs of holly instead of jewelry and, and dress very, like, lightly and flowingly and just sort of be, you know, hippies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Edward knew them a little bit. 
Um, the he needed to get his connect on. <laughs> Uh, the Church of England was in great decline at this time. Uh, Catholicism was making a comeback. Uh, you kind of see that in Brideshead Revisited, mm-hmm. too. Um, but, I mean, obviously, Edward, of course, had to go to the Church of England every Sunday. It says here, Edward went to church every Sunday to appease his conscience, but if the sermon exceeded a quarter of an hour, he would pull out his watch ostentatiously. <laughs> Which, if I, if I could do that, I might still go to church. No, you wouldn't. No. Yeah, this is, again, the era of the professional beauties, largely aristocrats who were just known as being beauties, and you would buy their picture postcards, and they would even, like, do toothpaste advertisements and things like that at times. Yeah. Uh, One of them, Lady Warwick, uh, is the inspiration for the song Daisy Daisy. Oh. Yes. She, uh, she had... Yeah, she had an affair with uh, Prince Edward. Uh, if quote the important correspondence recently un- unveiled is to be believed, which since the author gives no reason to think that it shouldn't be believed, I I'm just it's important. Yeah, I'm if just, it was inconsequential, then maybe I would cast some aspersions. Yeah, I'd throw a little shade. <laughs> yeah, um, the uh, politics at the time, Victoria hated prime minister gladstone so that was a challenge um it, it sort of it said it kind of revived her when gladstone came into power because she hated him so much mm-hmm. that it gave her like energy uh, and she refused to allow uh this guy charles dilka to be uh, a minister to have a portfolio because he was a republican once mm-hmm. uh, and even though he wasn't anymore she wouldn't let him uh thus his continually pointing out that the military was in a state of shambles and had been since the Crimean War, and nobody had done anything about it, and it was run by the Duke of Cambridge, who was an idiot. Uh, but nobody listened to him. Thus, uh, you know, until the Boer War finally came along, and everybody was like, I say, they really are terrible. <gasps> In 1885, he visited the Marcus of Ripon. Just a, Ripon? Yeah. City of a thousand dreams! <laughs> that's right. Uh, so that's a note. Uh, did and- he go see his dressmaker? <laughs> I, I don't believe he did, as he did not wear dresses. Um, they would have had oh, to be. Oh, that's J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, yes, they would have had to be very large dresses. Uh, he was kind of in low favor among the upper nobility at this point. Uh, Lord Stanley's family referred to him as Tum Tum. Oh dear. Due to the size of his Tum Tum. Tum Tum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a friend of his, uh, G- uh, Mr. Gordon Cumming, uh, was gotten a big scandal where he cheated at cards, uh, while at a party that Edward was at. Edward came out with a statement saying that he abhorred gambling and couldn't believe it had been going on, which was wildly hypocritical as he gambled constantly. <laughs> um, uh, a Madame de Portalet would hire actors to come when he was there so that her friends wouldn't have to be put in the position of potentially losing a ton of money to edward because he didn't care how much it was and one of one of her friends one time lost like way more than she could afford Uh and so from then on she just hired actors to fill out the other chairs Uh and would would cover their losses for them um it does talk about uh, oscar wilde here and makes the interesting point that oscar wilde was really more of an edwardian than a victorian yeah that's true Um, so that's yeah which was just good observation philip julian that was that was solid well at least he did one (laughs) He then met, he met Alice Keppel in, uh, 1896, and she was his primary mistress for his whole life. He never spent more than a week away from her from the time he met her to his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one fun fact about her, her great granddaughter, Camilla Parker Bowles. Oh my god! 
god yeah uh-huh. that is crazy that is crazy oh my god yeah that's bonkers mm-hmm wow yeah yeah, so 1896 is a good year for him. He met her and his horse Persimmon won the Derby or Darby. Is I think it's Darby. Okay, won the Derby, which got him earned him thirty thousand pounds. Oh my! Yeah, boy, pigs, horses. Yeah, he he was Camilla Parker Bowles' <laughs> great grandmother. <laughs> he had it all. He did have it all. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh one of one of the uh, happiest moments of his life, according to somebody. Winning his horse winning. He really seems like his priorities are out of whack. Well. Shouldn't meeting his long-term mistress have accounted for more than that? <laughs> he would think. I guess his long-term mistress probably never gave him 30,000 pounds. <laughs> probably not. Um, because that would have made him a gigolo. Yeah. Uh, one time he uh, fell down some stairs and uh, broke his knee. Um, <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, it happened. No, it's um, just the way that you presented it. Yeah. And everybody, like, his whole entourage was, like, horrified because he was going to be insufferable if he was stuck in one place. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, let's, ha- let's have him take a cruise. That way he can be out moving around without, you know, having to walk too much. Uh, and so they got a friend of his, longtime friend, uh, uh, Sykes was his name. Bill Sykes? I don't believe so. I should have written down his first name, but I didn't. Um, but he was just this guy that was always in his posse, and he abused him his whole life. He would, like, play, quote, practical jokes on him, like pouring a bottle of cognac down his shirt and just, you know. I assume you mean Edward would do this. Edward to okay. do this to yeah. Sykes, yes. And... Sykes would always say, I'm your long-suffering servant, my lord, and things like that, and just abused him his whole life. Then, so he wanted, they wanted Sykes to go on this cruise with him, so they invited him along, and he said, uh, I'm really sick, I can't go. And they said, you don't understand, you're invited on this cruise. <laughs> and uh, so he went along on the cruise and died. Well, I guess he wasn't going to get abused anymore. Yeah. Um, so that happened. So uh, that's two people. Two people. That Edward is killed with his shenanigans. Yes, indeed. The one thing about Sykes is that, I mean, he wasn't particularly anybody aristocracy-wise, but his name is inscribed in the royal chapel with, like, kings and queens. Wow. Yeah, because Edward uh, really liked the guy and probably felt bad that he'd killed him. <laughs> <laughs> um. He was in Belgium at some point in the 1890s and actually had an assassination attempt against him. And the Belgians just, like, didn't investigate. They didn't care. And so... That's Belgians for you. <laughs> yeah. No, and there was, like, a... Uh, so there was, you know, diplomatic pressure and the Belgians finally, like, arrested him. But then the trial was, like, half-assed and he got, like, a light sentence. And it was just like, ah, it's fine. We really don't care that you tried to kill the King of England. It didn't... That was their politics at the time. That just struck me as odd. It seems to me that if somebody tried to kill any king, even, you know, the Queen of the Netherlands or whatever, mm-hmm. I think there would be an investigation. Eh. Almost anywhere. I'm fine with it. Well, you, it wouldn't be up to you. It might be. <laughs> you was, don't know. That was surprising. I'm the doctor. <laughs> At this point, Emperor William... Uh, known to us better as Kaiser Wilhelm, oh, uh, begins to enter the picture. His uh, his father married a daughter of Victoria, and when his father died, troops surrounded the castle that Victoria's daughter was in and like took away all diplomatic papers and everything from her and made sure that it was clear that she was no longer uh, you know part of anything. And yeah. he treated her horribly, and so uh, you know 
Victoria and Edward were always pretty mad at him for that. And also, dude was crazy. Like, for example, uh, Rudolf of Austria invited Edward to come stay with him for, you know, a hunt mm-hmm. or whatever. Wilhelm heard about that, or William heard about it. He's William throughout this book. William heard about it, invited himself for the same time, and said he wanted to be the only person there. And so Rudolf was basically forced to, because he was closer to Germany than England, ex- like say okay and send a message to Edward saying, uh, you're not invited anymore. And so Edward had to like go hang out in the court of Romania, which is apparently terrible. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, they've got all those vampires. Yeah. And Vic- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this mental image. Of it's just Prince Edward just like pouring cognac down there, down there, just yeah. like being ir- like not yeah. even being concerned, just like right. ah, why are there so many vampires? And the, the Romanian royal family is just sitting there drinking, like yeah, it's just like this here. We can't stop it. You want to pet our bunny, particular? <laughs> Um, yeah, and Victoria at that particular incident was pissed off and like wrote all these letters that were just saying, we cannot believe this is entirely unacceptable that you would do da 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 and it was just very enjoyable to read because, you know, she knew how to get pissed off. Yeah. One of her skills. Um, at this point, they started working on getting his sons married. There was a Princess May who later became Queen Mary. She was originally engaged to Edward's oldest son, also named Edward, uh, the Duke of Clarence, who was kind of, you know, he was one of those inbreeding royals. Ah. That was, he was so a, a real Prince Charles there, huh? <laughs> At best. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this Princess May got engaged to him. Shortly thereafter, he died, at which point she became engaged to his younger brother, Prince George, and they got married. Uh, and they became uh, King George V and mm-hmm. Queen Mary. Elizabeth's youngest, or Edward's youngest daughter, Maud, married King Hakon of Norway, or a Danish cousin who became King Hakon of Norway. And so there are many uh, parts of Antarctica that are named after her, Queen oh. Maud's Land and some places like that. Cool. Because Roald Amundsen was the first to explore that that as an antarctica fan that was interesting to me uh victoria did start taking up with kind of a successor to john brown late in her life uh munshi abdul kareem because she decided to learn hindustani since she was the emperor of india Mm. and he was brought in for that and she uh was spending a lot of time with him and he in late in her life group portraits so he's in all of them um she is so weird she is so weird and the India office got very upset and wanted to make very sure that, he, you know, uh, that Munshi Abdul Karim was not translating, you know, sensitive dispatches and things right, like that. Right, right. Um, or the Kama Sutra. Yeah. Um, and at this point, she basically, I mean, it had been going this way for a long time, but especially after her Diamond Jubilee, she just became a bizarre old widow lurking in the darkness of her <laughs> palaces and just like everything was miserable. It talks about Edward hiding behind pillars so as not to be seen by her. And it just sounds just so awful. Of one of her ladies-in-waiting, she was always very happy. Happy is not the right word, but she always kept track of all the people she knew that had died and kept their memorials everywhere. And just in the sort of, like, happy that she had outlived them kind of way. Like She was like a goth. (laughs) She was. She actually very much was. I mean, she kept... I mean, all group portraits always had a bust of Albert in them. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always around. Ew, in the portrait? Yeah. Gross. Oh, yeah. Generally the center. Yeah. Listen, if I outlive you, 
<laughs> I'm not doing that. No, nor should you. It was it was weird. Uh, one of her ladies in waiting at some point late in her life, referring to all these dead people around her, said, isn't it a comfort to know that we shall soon meet them again in the bosom of Abraham? To which Victoria replied, I shall certainly not be meeting Abraham. <laughs> which, I don't know what she meant by that. Well, she clearly was not a big fan of his work. <laughs> I guess. She's the- like, I would have killed my son immediately. <laughs> yeah. Um, not meeting Abraham. Yeah. What a bitch. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. A lot of the, this too is just the ups and downs of, of William who would be suddenly come back and charm everybody in Britain and then do something insane and then come <laughs> back and charm them again. It was always very back and forth. Uh, his his best friend in in Britain was a Lord Lonsdale, who the author, again with no footnotes, describes as crippled with debts and very stupid. <laughs> just just puts that in there. Um, you just an example of of uh, William's sense of tact uh, during the Boer War. Uh, on Christmas, he handed Edward a dossier that his military advisors had drawn up on what they were doing wrong in the Boer War and how they could do better. Um, <laughs> That's a great present. Yeah. Now I know what I'm getting you. <laughs> that would be, that'd be great. Uh, the Boer War in general, by the way, this is as the end of Victoria's reign just turned everybody in the world against England. Like, mm-hmm. they were so cruel and incompetent. And, like, you know, it wasn't just that they were cruel. Plenty of people were being cruel all over Africa. They were just doing it well. They were, well, they weren't, they weren't, like, they weren't getting the job done. No, no that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. The, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. weren't doing it well. Right, exactly. And so, and just, just blundering around like fools and everybody. They, they said cartoons in Paris the, at this time that just picked, that just depicted Queen Victoria as a giant behind with a tiny crown on it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, <laughs> that's saucy yeah for the time yeah it is uh and then in uh 1901 right uh yeah in 1901 the queen's health started to rapidly decline um and uh she she passed away edward was there william insisted on being there despite everyone's advice and in fact uh he was sort of right in that everybody did kind of appreciate it and thought well of him for being there i mean it was his grandmother um and uh, well, her second to last words were to Edward. Her then final last words were for her dog. Um, <laughs> what a bitch. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, and then passed away and then Edward was now king. Um, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for him at the beginning. Uh, the Times said, We would not pretend that there was nothing in his long career that those who admire and respect him would have wished otherwise. Which is a nice, like, triple negative. <laughs> yeah, like, like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> right. How do I fit into this? <laughs> Just so if Edward got mad, we're like, what did you mean by that? Like, we can honestly say we do not know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, novelist Henry James wrote to a friend, we all feel without a mother now that we no longer have the mysterious little Victoria, but only the fat, vulgar, and terrible Edward. <laughs> and thus the Edwardian era began. Interesting. Yeah. See, I'm envious because your book seemed to have a through line. Well, it's it's pretty – yeah. I mean, and it mine, does it, – Listen, I'm just yeah. going to apologize up front. That was great. My, <laughs> my part was terrible. Well – 
you know, again, we did have I my source material gave me I I don't think it was that much better, but it gave me a lot more to work with. Well, this just I don't know. This book just doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. there's just no way to break it down. Yeah. I mean, not without going into a level of work right. that I frankly don't have time for. Right. But like ah oh god, it's just disappointing. Well, it's just, you know, you could probably write an entire book on any one of the people that are in mm-hmm, this book. Mm-hmm. It's just that he chose to put all of them into this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just one of those, here's all the things I learned. Yeah. In random order. Pretty much. So, listen, cousins, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tom wins history as usual. Well, I, you know, I'm. it's my specialty. Luncheon. <laughs> you win many other things. I'm just and saying, I'm just trying to make up for it by saying luncheon. And I think that's a good strategy. Okay. And so, well, look, we hope you have all had a good time. Only one more episode and then it's back to the real deal. Yeah, yeah. And the next episode is going to be Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. Which everybody likes. Yeah. It so, got dancing penguins. It does. That it does. Um, so, yeah, very excited, you know, excited for that. Very excited to get Mostly back to Downton Abbey. Mostly excited about Downton Abbey. Oh, yeah. Like, we're, so, I can't believe how close we are. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, almost here. I just want to listen to the theme song all the time. <laughs> yeah. Pling, 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 <laughs> pling, pling, pling. That's what I do all the time around the house, incidentally. <laughs> I just, like, run around doing that. <laughs> so, you're all welcome that I didn't marry you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. So until next time, up up yours yours downstairs. downstairs.